Welcome to Season 4 of Business Book Talk. I'm your host, Bob Garlick. This year, we have even more great books to help you excel in business and life. You can search for book topics and themes at businessbooktalk.com or subscribe using your smartphone for great content on the go. Hey everybody, it's Bob here, and I have a book that is about to blow your mind, and if it doesn't, just start reading it from scratch again. Hey, uh, Stephen, just started chatting with you, and we got so excited when we connected, we're two flow buddies, and you know, I've used this word flow. What the heck is flow? So, flow is technically defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And I think most people have had some experience with flow. Flow it refers to those moments. We get so sucked in by what you're doing, where your concentration gets so intense that everything else just falls away. Time flies. It, it technically it dilates, meaning it slows down like the freeze frame of a car crash or it speeds up, so five hours will pass by in five minutes. Your sense of self, your sense of self-consciousness totally disappear in all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof. You know what? I, I've, I've been a, an artist for many, many years, and I have experienced flow many, many times, and I've just had, never had a word for it. Um, and it's true. You know, you're, you're just concentrating so much you're <clears throat> in this zone, and you finish, and it's like, holy crap, that was like six hours. What happened? But the amount of work that you accomplish in that state is, well, it's pretty inspiring, actually. So for you, you... you spend a lot of time researching uh, to, to find out what's going on. Is this a, a recognized phenomenon, or, or are we talking something Absolutely. that just happened to artists? So, so, so research into flow states dates back almost 150 years. Mm. Literally some of the earliest, the foundations of, of what has become cognitive neuroscience, what has become experimental psychology, these were, this was research into altered states of consciousness that radically amplify performance. William James, the turn-of-the-century Harvard psychologist, philosopher, he thought he was looking at mystical experiences, so that's what he called them. Abraham Maslow came along in the 40s. He was looking at commonalities among all successful people and found they all used these heightened states to motivate them forward and to amplify their performance. He called them peak experiences. Then in the 60s and 70s, a uh, University of Chicago psychologist, the chairman of the department, actually, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, <clears throat> did what we would today call the largest global happiness study ever. And he went all over the world talking to, first he started with expert performers, everybody from surgeons to dancers to chess players, and then he broadened his, out his reach and talked to artists. He talked to assembly line workers, to meditators, to Japanese motorcycle gang members, on and on and on. And he found that all of them reported when they felt their best and performed their best, they were in this state that he termed flow. And the reason he called it flow is when they were describing the state to him, they said in this state, every action, every decision leads seamlessly, fluidly to the next. It feels flowy. So that, in keeping with this renaming tradition, he called it flow. But as you pointed out, he called it flow. Then runner's high came along. We've heard in the zone. If you're a beatnik jazz musician, it's in the pocket. If you're a basketball player, it's being unconscious. The lingo is endless, but the experience, as you pointed out, is pretty unforgettable. Hmm. You know, it's. I remember reading a book, um, Orson Scott Card, and uh, it was called, uh, gosh, I can't remember. it didn't really matter, but it, everybody had a knack. 
and a knack was the a person that has an innate ability to be de- to do something or several things almost to perfection, whereas other people couldn't. Like they could do a really nice barrel, but these people just had a knack for making a perfect barrel, and it would just hold water just so much better. And I'm thinking maybe that is part of the flow consciousness, where you're, you know, some people are are are, are have a flow for for creativity, or, or when they use their creativity, some people get into the flow through sports. How does somebody find their flow? Well, you, you covered a couple of different things um, that kind of circle back to a couple things. Sure, so the yeah. first thing we need to know is, since Chick sent me high did his original work right in the '60s and '70s. We have neuroscience has advanced leaps and bounds. So we've gotten very good at peering under the hood at kind of what's going on in the brain and the body that's creating these states. So one of the things we've learned is, as you pointed out, there are massive on-ramps into flow. There are 17 different so-called flow triggers. These are conditions, preconditions that lead to more flow. People are hardwired for different triggers. And the easiest thing, and this kind of gets back to your barrel-making story, I believe, what these triggers have in common is flow always follows focus, right? It's a high state of massively intense concentration. So if you're talking about hacking flow without getting into too much specifics, you're always talking about following attention. So one of the things that we pay a hell of a lot more attention to are things we are deeply passionate about. That's just kind of fundamental biology. I am deeply passionate about writing. I am deeply passionate about action sports. I'm deeply passionate about animals, for example. All three of those things really focus my attention. I'm not so passionate about opera, so I'm probably not going to get into flow states via opera, but I can very easily kind of get into them working with animals, working as a writer, or you know, hurling my body down mountains at high speeds. It sounds to me like you're talking about triggers. So if I'm a business person, and I, I want to find my flow or get into a flow thing. Really, the, the first thing I got to do is find out where my passion is. How, you know, and, and I, this may sound silly, but you know, a lot of people out there don't know what their passion is. And uh, there's lots of books out there. But really, how does a person find their passion or know if they're in a passion zone? That's an interesting question, um, and it's probably a very tricky one. I mean, one thing I can do is I can send people to the flowgenomeproject.co, mm-hmm. which is the website for the organization I run, and we have a flow diagnostic that we give away for free. Cool. And all it basically does is it's some very broad general questions that kind of look at what, where, what kinds of environments are you most likely to find yourself into flow. It's, it will zero you in on passion. That's one way. When I teach writing, which I do every now and again, I always tell you know, upcoming journalists that the secret here is to exploit your curiosity. Make a list of 100 things you're interested about and find out where two or three or four of them start to overlap. I would say the exact same thing is true about passion. You make a list of all the things you can think of that you're passionate about and look for places they intersect. That's where you should be working. How do you... Let's say you're you're a flow type person. I mean, for me, um, I've lived kind of a flow existence without even knowing it. Uh, And and when I work with uh, advertising agencies, I would go into these agencies and look around and say, man, this place is working about 10, maybe 15% efficiency. And I would go in there, sit at a desk and just do my thing and be finished in, you know, half an hour, an hour, maybe two hours if it was a massive project. And then get up and expect everybody else to be caught up with me. 
How does a, a person that has mastered uh, a flow or, or can get into flow naturally um, deal with the people around them with the frustration and, and stuff like that? You know, I have to tell you, nobody's ever asked me that question before. It's a really interesting question. Um, and let's back up for a second sure. and just kind of speak to where you started, which was the massive productivity. Because mm. this, this is a business show, sort of, and I, I do want to address flow in business for half a second just so people understand this. Yeah. McKinsey did a 10-year study of top executives. They found top executives in flow are five times more productive than out of flow. So five times is 500%. That means you can go to mon- work on Monday in flow, take Tuesday through Friday off, and get as much done as your steady-state peers. Now, how to get along with the steady-state peers who are not keeping up? That's a really interesting question, and all I would say to you is you've mastered a talent that is extremely difficult for a lot of people that we're only now starting to really understand, and hopefully you can guide them towards materials that will get them into more flow so they can keep up, because I can understand your frustration. Yeah, well, I, I just... I don't know how to call it frustration. I just kind of find it like kind of curious. It's like, hey, dudes, just jump on board. It's not that hard. But maybe it is a lot harder than I think. I, I used to design a magazine uh, when I was in Asia. And uh, it, you know, it was a 106-page magazine. And uh, I, they had a team of uh, five writers, a couple of photo editors, you know, a big magazine editorial team. And they would work all month long. And then uh, I would have an editor sit beside me for 16 hours and I would basically design the whole thing and I would give myself 30 seconds per page for the design and I said okay go and I the all the editor beside me would have to do is make sure that the title I came up with is what he wanted and if they could come up with a better title faster than I could design the header then they got to keep that and I you know they could never do it it's interesting a one thing you you are you you are pointing at though is you know one of the things that tends to trigger flow, and one of the reasons I, I write about action and adventure sport athletes in The Rise of Superman, right, which is my new book about, about the science of flow, and one of the reasons these guys get into flow so deliberately and reliably and repeatedly is because they function in high-consequence environments, mm. right? Consequences catch and focus our attention. But the interesting thing is when you look at the neurobiology underneath, it doesn't just have to be physical con- consequences. It can be intellectual consequences, creative consequences, et cetera, et cetera. As you've just pointed out, really tight deadlines, those are, in a sense, intellectual consequences, right? Mm. So people who want to drive themselves into flow more frequently, one of the techniques is to set artificial deadlines. Well, it makes sense. I mean, it is, it, that's a classic artist statement, you know, that they, they're always classic, oh man, you, you, you're just such a procrastinator and it's, oh, and there's all this negative energy put onto the person. And really, all it is is like they can just, get, they're just waiting to get into the flow. They're waiting for the flow to kick in and that doesn't kick in until it's too late. Well, sometimes it's very much the case. <laughs> now, I wanted to talk to you about... Uh, the aha moment. I ask this to every single writer I chat with. When you were putting this, you know, you, you chatted with a whole pile of people, then you're putting the book together. When, you're, when you were there, what was the aha moment? When, when something you already knew was real, but it just clicked and you had a deep conscious saying, okay, now I totally get it to the core. Well, for me, uh, when I, for, it's been 15 years that I've been investigating these topics, mm. and the really big aha moment 
um, <clears throat> came, one of them came early on. One of the things that happens in deep, deep, deep flow states is people oftentimes report this feeling of being one with everything. Mm. This cosmic unity is the mystical name for it. And it's this deeply puzzling phenomenon, and it shows up in flow. You hear surfers talk about becoming one with the wave, or climbers become one with the mountain, and it sounds like New Age babble. But in the 1990s, a neuroscientist named, Arn, uh, named um, excuse me, Andrew Newberg, who was at the University of Pennsylvania, was using spec scans, which is really powerful brain imaging technology, similar to fMRI, sort of, um, to look inside the brains of Tibetan Buddhists and Franciscan nuns. And he figured out that one of the things that happens in flow is parts of the brain start to shut down. It's an efficiency exchange. As our concentration goes up, energy is needed for focus and concentration and awareness, and so other parts of the brain start to shut down. This is known as transient, temporary, hypo, which H-Y-P-O, it means to slow down or deactivate. It's the opposite of hyperfrontality. It's the prefrontal cortex, part of your brain that houses your executive function. Earlier, you talked about how time gets funny in flow. It's because time is calculated all over the prefrontal cortex, and as parts of it start to wink out, we can no longer separate past from present from future. So time gets wonky. In deep flow experiences, when concentration gets really, really intense, a part of your brain called the right parietal lobe goes hyperfrontal. The right parietal lobe is the part of your brain that literally helps you navigate. When you walk across a room, this is, how, this is the part of your brain that keeps you from bumping into the furniture. It does this by drawing kind of a line around your body and saying, this is where self ends and the rest of the world begins. In deep flow, when tension goes up really significantly, that part of your brain shuts down. So you can no longer separate self from other. So at that moment in time, your brain actually believes you're one with everything. And to me, learning that, that bit of research, that was what did it. I went, oh my God, here's this crazy experience that I thought that I'd had that I thought, I honestly thought I was losing my mind when I first had it because I'm a science writer. I don't have quasi-mystical experiences. <laughs> and, you know, so I've been chasing down that bit of information. Once that clicked into place, and I understood there was kind of biology beneath these experiences, and that this puzzle was solvable. I, that was once that once that happened, I never looked back. By the way, mm. just just so you know, um, you may not be there in Rise of Superman yet, but uh, towards the end of the first section, I actually uh, the, the aha moment is very very common in flow for a lot of neurobiological reasons that I won't go into. But I actually break down what happens in the brain during an aha moment in Rise. Oh wow! Awesome. Well, now, now you got me really intrigued. I just, you know, I was listening to you there, and, and one of the things that popped in mind, I have uh, uh, moments, or, or I think people have moments in dreams when you're doing a sports activity and you're burning down a hill, you're, you're either flying or you're running or you're biking or you're doing some sort of physical activity and it, you're, you're flowing, you're, you know, you're skateboarding and you, you think, God damn, I'm going so fast, I'm going to wipe out, I'm going to kill myself. And then you just let that go. And suddenly you're in this dream where you you don't have to worry about breathing. You're just going for it, and it's the flow. It's re-experiencing the flow in a in a a moment of meditative sleep. I would think. Um, have you ever experienced anything like that? Uh, two things you should know. First of all, there is similarity between what goes on in the brain waves uh, when you're actually dreaming in REM sleep and what happens to your brain uh, when you're in flow they actually exhibit similar brainwave patterns. So that's, fairly, that's a fairly radical alteration. But 
I had the experience you're talking about. One of the things that I have found that is incredibly beneficial to me is when I go out and have a high flow experience, whether it's writing my book or skiing down a mountain, I visualize that experience as long as I can hold on to the feeling, which is usually a couple of days right afterwards, mm. I, as I'm going to sleep. So I, because I want to groove that pattern in my brain. I want my brain to be able to, you know, the more flow you have, the more flow you have. You're grooving the brain. You're teaching it to get into these states more frequently. So I often use visual rehearsal as I'm falling asleep to try to, A, trigger those dreams, but really to make it easier for myself to access flow when I'm wide awake. Mm. You know, you, you touched on a very good point, and training the brain, getting, um, you know, we we do have mental ruts, and you have positive mental ruts as well as negative mental ruts. It's you know, ruts just aren't one type of thing. So, how do you dig your Superman rut into your brain? I mean, is, is it repetitiveness? I mean, we talked earlier about thinking about all the things you love to do, and and hopefully you have a a, a business or a career that that's focused in that direction. Well, as I said earlier, there are 17 known flow triggers, right? Preconditions that lead to more flow. Mm. So the very best thing you can do, and you can, by the way, I, if, you, if you look under Stephen Kotler, uh, 17 flow triggers online, there's a slide share that I just put out that's free that anybody can access um, that kind of breaks all these down. So it's available for free online. You don't even actually have to buy the book. But uh, what people who are really good good at this have done is they have surrounded their lives. They've built their lives around these flow triggers, essentially, so that they can maximize the amount of flow in your life. The actual training of the brain, that takes place on its own. One of the things that happens in flow, and it's sort of automatic, is flow is a combination of it cocktails, five of the most potent neurochemicals the brain can produce. Now, neurochemicals do a lot of different jobs. One of the things they do is they tag experience to be saved for later. So when you get a whole lot of neurochemicals showing up in the brain at one time, it's like a giant neon sign on the experience saying, critically important, save for later. So one of the things we find in flow is not only does it maximize in the moment performance, it massively accelerates learning and memory. In studies run by the military, snipers in flow learn snipe, uh, target acquisition skills 200% faster than normal. In another non-military study, but very similar with snipers, they took novice snipers up to the expert level in 50% less time by putting them into flow states. So the learning is automatic. The grooving of the brain is automatic. It just takes place. What you have to do is find ways to get yourself into the state, and once you're there, find ways to extend it, meaning keep your focus in that flow state. Just try to stay in it. Try not to get pulled out of it or distracted. You know, you, you, uh, you know when we were describing that, um, the word flow implies movement, but a lot of times if you're in a flow state, um, it's almost like uh, a Zen state where you, you, you may not be moving at all, but internally your brain is just going a million miles an hour. And, and I don't want people to you know, think, oh, I got to be a sports guy. I got to be in a perfect physical shape to, be a fl- uh, to get into the flow. Really, what you're talking about when you say flow is an inner, an inner being or an inner yeah, state. Yeah, I mean, that's why we call it flow, right? There's the feeling that every decision, every action leads perfectly effortlessly to the next one. Flow feels flowy. But sometimes those are physical actions, and sometimes those are intellectual actions. Mm. Writers, artists get into flow by making creative decisions, right? That drives 
people deeper into the zone as well. So you're absolutely correct. This is not it's always an action state. There's always something is going on, right? It's not it's not like other states of consciousness, it's not like dreaming or things like that, which are very passive. The, they're active states. That said, as you pointed out, you can be sitting on your butt and just thinking and be deep in a flow state as well. And it's not, you know, it's really, really not just athletes. We associate the zone very much with athletics and especially with action adventure sports. And I rely on the action adventure sport athletes in Rise as case studies because they're so good at getting into flow. But the point is the state is ubiquitous, shows up all over the place. In fact, I'll give you a, a great business example. Mm. If you look at the high-tech revolution, it was sort of built on the back of three skills, network design, circuit design, and software design. We know from copious amounts of research that none of these things are possible at really high levels without deep flow experiences. So if you're looking for a non-athletic example of what happens when a bunch of people start getting into flow regularly, Silicon Valley is not a bad place to start. You know what? It, it, I was just thinking that what and what time in in our history have we ha- do we have lots and lots of flow moments and i i would assume that would be when uh, a, a nation has a common goal like the great depression it's like how can we get out of this thing and everybody that is capable of getting into a flow moment is doing that at the same time and they 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 tend it's to interesting be- that you bring that up um you you nailed it exactly one of the things we know cuz of work done by a guy named Keith Sawyer. He's a neuropsychologist at the University of Washington in St. Louis. Um, He worked on so-called social triggers. Mm. Um, These are triggers that produce group flow, which is a shared flow experience. So startups are very high group flow environments. You see a lot of that. Um, One of the things that uh, we know about group flow, one of the triggers for group flow is a common goal. When a group of people share a common goal, it's a big group flow trigger. focuses everybody on the same thing. Hmm. How does a company that that's not in the flow moment get there? Because I would think if I, you know, I have a CEO or, and I want my company to be supercharged and, and have uh, way more uh, competitive advantage, the more people I get into the flow in the organization, the better. Is that an impossible thing to go for? No, not at all. Flow, um, flow in business has been around for a very long time. There are major corporations, Toyota, Ericsson, Patagonia, Green Cargo, et cetera, et cetera, uh, Microsoft, who have put flow at the center of their corporate methodology already. There are other companies, um, very, very successful. Google and Facebook are a really great example, where a lot of the practices they have put into place to, you know, in terms of people management are literally flow hacking tricks. For example, Facebook's has no meetings on Wednesday. Why? Because coders need long periods of uninterrupted concentration to get into the flow. So they've already built this in. So not only you know, is this critical for business, I would say that big companies are already doing it. Look, if you work in technology right now, you're competing one way or another with Facebook or Google. One of the two of them is going to venture into one other area you're in. They're already producing massive amounts of flow on the job. And if we're talking about employees being five times more productive, you're already trying to compete with these companies and they have endless dollars. Now they've got you know, flow hacking techniques to heighten productivity. If you haven't started, you're sort of behind the eight ball. And I think over the next two to five years, we're going to see this more and more. We're seeing flow show up more and more in the business literature. It's becoming much more important. 
Um, the reaction I've gotten to rise out of the business community has been pretty overwhelming. So I think, you know, this stuff is already seeping into business, and I think it's going to become much more prevalent over the next five years. Okay, I'm going to go dark on you now. Flow burnout. How how long can somebody be in flow? I mean, if if you one of the I think fundamental problems with business right now, if you have somebody that's flowish or super super um, active, you bring them into an organization. The more they do, the more you give them, and eventually you just burn them out. How do you manage a flow person? Well, what's interesting, you bring up a really important point, and it, the answer is a little complicated, but. Mm. The short version of, of, of one mistake people make about flow is they think it's a binary. It's, it's all, you can flip a switch, you're either in flow or you're not. It's actually a four-stage cycle. And on the tail end of the flow cycle, so the third stage of the cycle is the flow state. The fourth stage of the cycle is a learning and memory consolidation state. It's a recovery period. And you need that period because the neurochemicals, the, re, the brain's reaction to flow is very expensive to produce, and it has to recharge afterwards. So you go from this massive, massive high to a very considerable low afterwards. And this is known, and it's somewhat hard to deal with, and a lot of people can get stuck right there. One of the things that we see in business is we'll create, you know, you'll create a high-flow environment. You've got a whole team in the flow. They'll do amazing work, and then as soon as it's over, the reward for doing all this amazing work is even more work, even tighter deadlines, and suddenly there's no built-in period for recovery, and people get stuck, and they can't get back into flow again because their, their reserves are too low. So I think, you know, one of the, there are obviously lots and lots of different things you need to do, but you need to, uh, you need to p- give people the space to kind of thaw out after these experiences because it takes a little while till we can get back there. Well, you know, it, what I find in, uh, with organizations that I've worked in where I've gone into flow moments is uh, I'll come in in the morning, do my stuff, I'm finished in, in an hour or whatever, and then I'd be wandering around the office saying hi to people and, and disrupting other people because then they're never in the flow, so it really doesn't bother them that much. If they don't want to be disturbed, they've got their doors closed. So this is what we've learned. You personally are actually an enemy of flow. <laughs> okay, excellent. <laughs> Why am I an enemy? Because uh, you're going around disturbing people when they're in flow. <laughs> or they? Okay, so how can you tell if a person's in flow then? Well, you can't, but what you, one thing we do know is flow needs long periods of uninterrupted concentration, mm. as you pointed out. So if you're talking about office design, for example, unless you're trying to generate group flow, right, if you're trying to generate individual flow, right, if you're not, if it's, you're not dealing with kind of an innovation team or something along those lines, you need to be able to shut the door. You need to be able to turn off the cell phone. You need to be able to turn off your email, and you need to be able to focus for long periods of time, at least 90-minute stretches. And if you're not providing employees with that kind of space and the ability to shut their door and put a do not disturb sign on it and have people honor it, you're limiting their effectiveness. You know, what's um, another interesting thing with with, uh, the options you've got for working these days is you can work uh, at home. And a lot of organizations uh, have a hard time with people that work at home because they say, ah, they slack off so much and they've got all this free time, but gosh, they seem to get all their work done. Is it easier if you're in that type of environment where you actually don't have to go into an office, you can have your home office, you get up, you make your coffee, you sit down, boom, you get into the flow and there's, ah, you know what, I'm going to do some house chores now because I've got everything done. 
It is true. It does leave you lots and lots and lots of space for other activities. Well, you can definitely live a um, a better life. I mean, you're getting more for your time. And, and let's face it, life isn't about money. Life is about saving as much time as you can. I absolutely agree. Mm. And I also think not only are you getting more for your time in flow, it's one of the things that happens in flow is we can process far more information. So one of the big problems today is everybody's driven to distraction. We've got a million things bombarding us. And one of the things that happens is when you get into flow, I find, for example, I can get into a deep flow space while writing. I can pop out and then, you know, there's 50 emails and 17 phone calls that I have to respond to. And I can get through them in an hour as opposed to if I would have done it reverse and tried to do it before I got into flow, it would have taken me 17 hours. Yeah, very true, very true. So, if I, you know, I use kind of the tail end of my flow experiences to blast through a lot of kind of the busy work because I can get through it quicker and it's more fun and more interesting. What about for children that have, uh, and children might be naturally flow people, and over many, many years they're just beaten up by the school systems to realize that go flow is negative. Um, is, that, is that a problem? Well, um, I think it's much more of an opportunity. Mm. So as you point out, you're absolutely correct. Um, we are, talked earlier about transient hypofrontality. Children are developmentally hypofrontal. Their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until they're 25 years old. They also seem to have an easier time moving their brain waves into kind of the correct frequency for flow. So children are exceptionally flow prone. And what we're learning is that when you create extremely high flow environments for children, and I'll give you two examples. One is the world of action and adventure sports where the mental game the level of performance has risen so much recently because of all this flow that if athletes aren't getting into flow, they're ending up hurt or in the hospital or dead. So children who are playing these sports at a serious level are learning very early how to get into flow. They're being taught these mental tricks early on, mm. and it's producing astounding results. You're seeing 12, 13, 14-year-old kids in skateboarding, for example, beating out the 30-year-old professionals in the X Games. Another great example comes from Montessori education. For a variety of different reasons, Montessori education is an extremely high-flow environment. It's based around uninterrupted periods of concentration. There's a lot of learning through doing, which uh, pulls another. It's called the deep embodiment flow trigger. It basically means all your senses are involved at once, and this obviously heightens attention. There's a lot of that in Montessori education. One of the things that we see in Montessori education when you test these kids against normal school kids is not only do they outperform normal school kids academically, they outperform them socially on pretty much every measure. So we know we know that people in flow learn 200 to 500% more than normal, and we know in high-flow environments, Montessori education, the action adventure sport environments, where we're teaching kids about these flow-hacking techniques or putting them in situations that drive them into flow, the results are spectacular. So yes, it's a problem, but I see an incredible opportunity here a way to really, really ramp up the education system. Hmm. What about the, how did I say it? Basically, the authority to make decisions. Unless you have the authority to move forward and make a decision and based on that decision, go to the next decision. Yeah, uh, if you're not given permission, it that's kind of... Stops flow right in its tracks. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things you're actually touching on. First of all, you know, earlier we talked about high consequences of the flow trigger. You need some risk to be able to bring on flow, right? So companies, by the way, who don't give their employees the freedom to fail, 
Mm. Don't give their employees the freedom to take risks, so they're keeping them out of flow. We also know, through some of Dan Pink's work, that autonomy, mastery, and purpose are essentially the three kind of core ingredients of passion, of flow, of intrinsic motivation. So if you're not operating in an environment where you have autonomy, where you can be in control of your own situation, it's a much lower flow environment. For uh, you know our listening audience, what would be one thing that they could do today that would get them on the path to a to more of a flow reality? Well, let let me just talk about kind of one of the one of the most famous flow triggers and where people get it right, where they get it wrong, because this is where I think a lot of people make errors. So, one of the psychological triggers for flow is known as the challenge skills balance. What this basically means is our attention is most focused in the now. When we're working on a task, where the skills we bring to bear are slightly less than we need. So the challenge is greater than our skills, but it's a very thin margin. If the challenge is too severe, we trip over to a fight-or-flight response, anxiety goes up, and we can't get into flow. The challenge is not great enough, we're bored, we're not paying enough attention, it doesn't work. Now, what is the exact difference between challenge and skills in terms of percentages? We don't know, but Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi teamed up with a Google mathematician. They did a back-of-the-envelope calculation and found 4% was their kind of average number. We took a deep look at that number at the Flow Genome Project and came up with something similar. Now, this is just... This is back of the envelope. None of this stuff has been published, and I wouldn't, you know, don't quote me, but it's roughly 4%. So the challenge needs to be 4% greater than the skills you bring to bear. Now, here's where people screwed up. High performers, they blow by 4% without even noticing. They'll go for something that's 15% greater than what they've got, 20% greater, because they think they need this big challenge. They need to dial it back some. Mm. For underperformers, people who aren't so severely motivated, 4% is about the point that you start to get seriously uncomfortable. So you have to be willing to understand that that uncomfortable sensation is actually a signal that you're in exactly the right place to bring out maximum performance and you shouldn't turn around and run tail. So for high performers, chances are you need to dial it back a little. For lower performers, you probably have to step it up to you're actually uncomfortable. And what you have to realize is that the way real progress gets made, the way you get these paradigm-shifting breakthroughs that we're all interested in is 4% plus 4% day after day after day. Slow and steady wins this race. You know, it, it's, um, it's easy to say 4%, but when you're in a day-to-day reality... It's really hard. To, uh, it yeah, it, it sure. is hard. So I like that idea about feeling, yeah, we're pushing a little bit too hard. And as soon as you're getting this niggly feeling, then you <clears> go for it. And let's be honest, right? This, we're talking about internal subjective states of consciousness. We're getting to the point that we can start to measure these externally and drive people into them using various technological hacks and things along those lines. But ultimately, you have to really... You need a lot of self-knowledge. You need a lot of emotional control. You need a lot of self-knowledge. And you have to constantly run these experiments on yourself. Did I push too hard? Was this too little? Is this right? You know, or, you know, say you get a work task that is insanely boring. How do I make it more challenging so I can drive myself into flow and do better on this task? Those are, those are questions you need to start asking yourself. Well, you know, it's... Um I remember many, many years ago, I used the term, oh, we're going to go New York speed now. And all that was a trigger for me. It was like, okay, now we're going to go into a flow, I guess. I I didn't know I was doing it at the time. But I craved those moments because they're so much fun. 
there, you know, it was so great to be in because you just got, it wasn't about getting a bunch of stuff done. It was just great being there. So for all you people listening, the rise of the Superman, Stephen Kotler, get this damn book. It's awesome. Burn through it, then burn through it again. I think it's a type of book that you can't, you should read cover to cover. You know, it's one of the questions I ask, can you flip around in a book? And a book like this, you can't. You can read the thing, then go back and start jumping to the areas where you, you need more practice or, or you need something happening in that moment. What do you think? Have I got it right? Well, I am not going to tell people not to read my book cover to cover and then start again, that's for sure. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you get in the flow, I mean, can you get in the flow with reading? That's, that's a tough question. Yeah, I, you know, I think you can. One of the things we know is that there's a creative trigger for flow. And what, when you look under the hood of that, what you're really trying to do is trigger pattern recognition, which is our ability to link ideas together. So what happens when you're reading a really great book, of course, is most of you is focused on the book, but a part of your brain is connecting those ideas to other things, and you end up creating that pattern recognition. This triggers a neurochemical response that can drive you into flow. So I think there very much is reading-based flow. Mm. Uh, I'm just going to touch on one last thing. At the very, very back of the book, you say flow is abundance. What's that all about? So my last book, which I co-wrote with Peter Diamandis, who's the founder of the X Prize, is called Abundance. Mm. And the idea at the heart of abundance is pretty straightforward. It's that right now in the world today, there are four emerging forces that give us the possibility to significantly raise global standards of living. But the important point is this is not techno-utopianism. These four forces are not an automatic Abundance is absolutely possible right now, but it is going to require huge effort. I would argue the largest cooperative effort in history is needed to bring us into this world. And I don't just mean everybody working together. I mean everybody at their very best working together. And if we're talking about that, then we're talking about people in flow. So to me, flow is not only fundamental kind of individual performance, work performance, quality of life, all those other things. I think it's fundamental to the future of the world. And with that, small but important note, <laughs> Stephen, thanks for coming on and, and uh, everybody listening. You were in a flow moment. We've just been on for 37 minutes and it felt like five minutes. That's what I want to hear. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe, leave comments, or make a request on our website, businessbooktalk.com. See you next week.